wait, wait, wait. I was like, here's your phone. Wait, I just want to get snuggled up before yeah. so we can just, okay, I'm going to take a little nap. I love you guys. Okay, now. It's Tuesday, February 12th, and you're listening to the Typed Out Podcast. I am your host, Nick Polifrone. Every week, Typed Out aims to deliver conversations that seek to expand the boundaries of understanding and acceptance. My guest today is a wildly talented writer whose work has been published on Huffington Post Queer Voices, Wellville's online magazine Death, Abs, and Smoothies, Her forthcoming debut novel, Dismantled, is currently underway. She is also an avid tower climber, pole dancer, and travel agent by day. You've heard her on the Typed Out podcast once before, along with fellow contributor Jazz Amani, but please welcome back the lovely, the fierce, Spencer Jones. Hi, it's good to be back. Welcome back, Spencer. So, this is sort of like a continuation of our last topic, which was our Martin Luther King Day homage podcast. Mm -hmm. This is, again, like a series of going into talking about race and racial literacy and kind of getting an inside perspective of what is happening in the black community in America. Mm -hmm. And there was something very specific that you wanted to bring up today. And if you wouldn't mind informing our listeners what they should buckle up and get ready for. (laughs) Well, invariably, when you discuss racism, somebody's going to be offended. Somebody's going to feel inadvertently or directly attacked. It's, it's very difficult to have discussions of racism without these things happening. Yeah. But one of the things I wanted to talk about, sort of, I guess, this, one of the subdivisions that fall under the canopy of racism is the idea of some people of color wanting to associate only or at least mostly with other people of color and how that is quite a valid way to live in light of the fact that we live in a country that is white supremacist and yes. always has been. You know, so that's that's what I wanted to talk about. Right. I think there's a lot of misconceptions about why some people of color do that. There's a lot of demonizing of people of color who do that. And I think one of the major reasons, of course, I'll get into this more a little later on, but one of the major reasons for it is is self-preservation and feeling a sense of community. And it certainly isn't just black people who do this. Other marginalized communities, members of the GLBT plus community, some women do this. And there are certainly other groups. They feel more at ease around other people who are like them. They feel that they don't have to explain their struggle because chances are someone else in the group can also relate to that struggle. And it can be very tiring to have to rehash things and explain things. We talked about microaggressions at the last podcast together. If I'm... You know, if I'm with Jazz, for instance, I don't have to explain microaggressions to her. She knows what that's about. Yeah. But whereas, you know, some white people are probably not going to understand what that is. And so the onus is on me to have to explain it. And while I'm happy to share knowledge or I wouldn't be here on the show with you now. Yeah. After a while, it's like, why don't you do some of the work? Which is the other thing that I do want to constantly come back to is anytime you're engaging in conversation with somebody of a marginalized or minority group, it is never the responsibility of that individual to educate you. The fact that they are willing to do so is a great respectful act. But 
at the same point in time, it is not their responsibility. So the fact that you are here to have this conversation with me today, I do thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> and coming back to like just bits of our MLK podcast, because I know that there were a few things that some of our listeners even wrote in about saying like, I wish I was able to ask questions about this conversation to unpack some things, which I know we'll get into today. Mm-hmm. When we were talking about safe spaces, right, we were mentioning how Like, why is it not okay for a certain group to have a space where the historically present problem isn't allowed in? How do you move towards solution if you're not working towards a common solution? Mm. Do you have any thoughts there? I know we also unpacked this last time, but it's like, I think this also kind of tails into what we're about to get into now. Well, I think wanting to create a better world for all mankind, or I should say all humankind, um, is a noble goal. I think most people are hoping for that day. But I don't think there's only one way to go about that. We can have the movements where you have every different kind of person coming together and discussing these things in an open forum and showing each other love and so forth. I'm all for that. But I also think that there are spaces and there are times when certain members of X marginalized group only want to be together, want to discuss solutions about how to secure rights for that group. And I use the example of the event I went to at Medgar Evers. And it didn't specifically say it's just for black people to discuss President Trump. Mm. It didn't say that. But the way that it was phrased, it was inferred mm-hmm. it's quite easy to decipher that that's what they meant that they were hoping to only attract people of color right and i i shared this with you that i had a white friend who wanted to go and ran it past me and he was like can i go do you think i should go and uh, this this friend of mine is extremely socially cognizant mm-hmm. and i like people like that i said well i can't tell you not to go But I would advise maybe you sit this one out because there are so many events, there have been so many events since the president got elected um, that you could go to and you could really have the platform to be able, you know, to speak and it wouldn't be seen as stepping on the toes of someone of the marginalized community. Now, with you just being present there, you might sort of inadvertently make some of the black people in the group um, uncomfortable. Yeah. Right? Because as a white male, you have access. There's literally no space that is inaccessible to you. And it's not because of anything you've done. It's because of your skin color. White people have had the power in this country. They continue to do so. Men continue to have the power. So you have privilege twofold. Yeah. Right? And I didn't have to explain it any further than that. He didn't, you know, badger me or anything. He's like, you know what? I understand what you're saying, so I will set this one out. So it's about, I think, not always centering yourself and realizing that there's a bigger picture beyond you. And in order for you to grow, you're probably going to have to have your feelings hurt at some point. Yes. And if you're truly interested in the pursuit of advancing yourself and evolving, then you will welcome this hurt to a point. Obviously, there has to be a point where you say, no, I'm not going to take this. Yeah. It's happened with me. I've had people check me you know, saying, well, this isn't appropriate, and what would you know about this because you're not part of this group? And in the past, my initial reaction was to get defensive because I was centering myself and my feelings. Mm. 
you know, but when you're a member of a privileged group, you are probably used to society coddling you and putting you at the center of everything. So suddenly when you find out in a specific situation, you're not at the center of things. People don't care about you particularly. Then you scream oppression because now you kind of finally have a taste of what it is like when the shoe is on the other foot. Right. And like a very minimal taste, Extremely shall we say. minimal. Yeah. <laughs> like that is like... <laughs> Almost non-existent. Like a baby spoonful. I came across a quote recently that said that it's easier to hold up to hate because when you remove the veil of hate, you have to deal with pain. Mm-hmm. And I think that is entirely true. And again, as I iterated in my last podcast when we were talking about race and racial literacy, is that this work is not easy, especially if you are somebody who is fair-complected, white, white approximate or white passing like when you are a part of a system that works on your behalf and you start to see where you are complicit in that mm-hmm. it's not cute it's really not cute and it, it does bring up pain but the point is is that you should be doing it to better society mm-hmm. don't do it for i mean yes do it for yourself and do it for your loved ones but also Go greater than that. Do better than that. Go for society. And I brought up Leila Efsad last time, who is the phenomenal creator behind the Me and White Supremacy workbook. And she talks about being a good ancestor. Be a good ancestor. Mm-hmm. And again, I defer to Layla for all of that. And she just started a podcast of her own. So if you want to really develop more into what she is iterating, please check out her work. But it's sort of that context. And again, coming back to talking about white centering, Mm -hmm. you know, when you come into a group and I remember I went to a play reading, a friend of mine did five short plays around the black female experience. And Mm -hmm. afterwards, there was a conversation around race and one elderly white woman got up and expressed hurt because she felt like the last piece didn't include white people. Well, how are we supposed to do this? Mm. And I get it. I get where she's coming from because I think that's part of the journey as a white person is that like you want to help, assuming that like you want to take that active step to heal the wounds of racism. Mm -hmm. But also that is part of the problem. Right. So that's an example of white centering where it's like, well, why am I not involved? Well, right now this isn't about you. Right. I think generational differences probably have a lot to do with that you mentioned she's elderly Mm. she probably has never found herself in the position of ever being made to feel excluded so suddenly she's in a space where she is excluded and as i said now she feels hurt now she feels that you know wow like how do i not why am i not being included this where you know Mm. because she's always been the default her feelings have always been the default so this is a growth opportunity for her i think i hope that she was able to walk away from the play yeah having learned something yeah so that started the conversation was her comment and then the tail end a black woman stood up and she goes i just have to say that i do resent you making that comment because suddenly you're taking my pain and making it about you exactly That's exactly what she's doing. And so I think that ultimately it was a learning lesson because somebody was bold enough and brave enough to say, this is actually about me right now. Right. And and that's coming back to what you were saying about the gathering, about talking about surviving as a black person in the era of Trump, Mm -hmm. obviously is not necessarily for white folks to be there. Right. So it's, again, being very cognizant about what spaces you enter, which ones are just not meant for you. Right. Yeah. And 
I think beyond having things dedicated to the political climate, there's also things on the social and cultural climate, which when we first started talking about this potential topic, mm-hmm. one thing that I wanted to bring up and something that I've been wanting to sort of address for quite some time now is this concept of reverse racism, <laughs> which I put a post up on Instagram, which was a reshare from someone who's an artist and he does balloon art. And it said, reverse racism isn't real. And I shared that on Instagram and it got quite a bit of uh, activity in the comments. I would imagine so. Yeah. Yeah. And (laughs) so I'm just going to defer to you, Spencer, if you wouldn't mind sharing with our lovely listeners as to why reverse racism is not a thing. Now, when you look up the definition of racism in Webster's or Oxford Dictionary, they give you the basic definition, which is that racism is the inherent belief that you are superior to somebody else for no other reason than your skin color. Rarely do dictionaries go into the nuance behind racism. Rarely do they discuss it within a historical context and how history impacts the present. The reason why reverse racism isn't a thing is because at no point in the history of the United States, if we just focus on the United States here, I think it's more simple. At no point in the history of the United States have black people had the systemic power to create whole institutions and whole systems around the idea of our superiority. On the other hand, white people have had the power to do this from the moment they first arrived, from the moment the Native Americans were slaughtered and white Europeans established themselves as the privileged group, built the foundations for these different systems, and these systems continue to flourish. And so what started to happen is when you had other groups, whether it's black people, descendants of slaves and so forth, by the time we're just getting started on the race, white runners are well ahead of us. And so here we are trying to catch up and we have to do it with chains on our feet and there are all kinds of obstacles in front of us that are not there for white people. Now, this isn't to say that white people cannot experience struggle. But the struggle is probably not because of the color of your skin. It could be about other things. Your sexuality, perhaps. Your financial status. Mm -hmm. If you have perhaps... Right, right. Perhaps having some kind of a physical disability or a mental disability. You know, absolutely you can experience struggle. But it's probably not because of the color of your skin. Right. So the the two aren't equal. So I've heard stories for instance of uh, a white woman was complaining at one point on social media about how uh, she was older and she had said that uh some black person referred to her like get away from me you white devil or something like that and she was bitching and moaning about that and I jumped in this a couple of years ago and I said I'm really sorry that you went through that. I'm not trying to invalidate how you feel. But please don't tell me that that is in any way comparable to police brutality, to the prison industrial complex, which incarcerates black and brown people, particularly men, at rates that are disproportionate to our numbers. It's not. Yeah. All right. No matter what you're called, you still enjoy and reap the privileges of being white. Yeah. Like end of discussion. And also health and educational limitations right. as well. Like it's it's just across the board. Yeah. It's across the board. 
And I think that is truly the biggest thing is that, yeah, if you look up the dictionary definition of what racism is, it is an act of hate or fear against someone of a different race. But again, we're talking here where there is so much, it's a power dynamic. We're talking about how racism in this country, in the United States of America, is a system of oppression. Right. And it cannot be reversed at this point. We're like 400 years deep. And so at this point, it is time to do the work to examine these things and see how we can create change. This also kind of rolls into the idea of why certain black folks prefer to stay within their community Mm -hmm. and limit interaction with specifically white people. Right. And I mean, I'm sorry to say that, you know, the distrust doesn't always come from nowhere. Yeah. You look at history, you look at the present. I mean, it's it's pretty clear what's happening. I have friends who only form relationships, whether they're platonic, romantic, sexual, with other black people for the reasons that I explained. They feel safer with them. They feel safer to have these kinds of conversations like, you know, being stop and frisk and having to deal with microaggressions when doing basic things like shopping. You know, so I get it. And I fully support. I think black love is a beautiful thing. Yeah. It could be platonic love, sexual love, whatever. I fully support it. And I see where that comes from, because one of the worst slavery, of course, as an institution was horrific, but it went beyond the chains and the shackles. It went beyond compromising uh, our freedom or the freedom of our ancestors. The purpose of slavery was also to divide. It was to strip black people of their identity. That's why you had so many instances of slaves having their slave masters names forced on them right like my last name is jones that's a slave name okay it's a welsh name i don't claim to be welsh i know exactly where that came from because i run into slavery on both sides of my family my mother is from the caribbean so there was a whole slave trade there yeah. my father is from uh, descended from an american the american south what starts to happen now and what has been happening is that you have some black people that are trying to reclaim their identity to reclaim their roots. And they figured that the best way to go about doing that is to form relationships with other black people because society has been telling us from the beginning that we're nothing, that we're subhuman, that your skin color is ugly, that you're a criminal. All of these negative things, there's an onslaught of negativity as it relates to black people. You hear more about black people getting shot than you do about the kid from the projects who somehow made it to Harvard. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And that's done by design. Right. So some black people are really tired of it now. And that's why they form relationships with other black people. I'm the kind of person who really tries to give, I would say, most people a chance to to get to know me. But I'm watching you. I watch what you say on social media. I listen to what you say when you're in my presence. And I start to decide, okay, do I give you as... Do I give you all of my time or most of my time or am I going to gradually start pulling away or am I going to cut ties completely? Because as I've said many times before, I I am more selective with who gets my time. Yeah. You know, and I have to say the great thing about the the white friends that I have now is I see awareness in them. I don't expect perfection in anybody, but I do expect awareness. I do expect accountability and I do expect acknowledgement of reality. Yeah. Please, if, if you think you're the kind of person who could sit here and tell me 
honestly with a straight face that every person in the United States is being treated the same. There's no reason for us to have any kind of discussion. It's just so completely divorced from reality. And I don't have the desire to explain reality to you. Right. You know, I wish you the best. I hope that you get that information that you're clearly sorely lacking, but it's not going to be from me. And all I would say is check in with the current political climate. Right. Because day in, day out, week in, week out, like we see the repeal on transgender military service and things like that. And you want to say that everyone's being treated fairly? That is not an example of equality. Right. These are people who are willing to go into the armed services. We don't have the draft anymore. These are people who are willing to put their lives down in the service of the United States, and they're being denied, or they're being ostracized because they're transgender. It's horrific. Yeah. I was, well, a friend of mine was showing me a clip from Phil Donahue, uh, Mm -hmm. and he was, he had somebody on to, to talk about race and racism. And the crowd was predominantly white, And he was like, he started off the conversation. He was like, okay, who here doesn't think that racism is a thing? Mm -hmm. And pretty much everyone was like, uh, me, you know? Mm -hmm. And he was like, so you mean to tell me that when you look at a major city and you see that the people who live in the center of that city are predominantly white Mm -hmm. and then anyone who is not lives on the margins of that city, you don't see racism? And they're like, no, not at all. This was, I think... Phil Donahue was what, 70s, 80s, I think yes, about? Yeah, I think so, yeah. So it was just amazing. The, the one thing that I really valued about that, what I saw from that clip, what I appreciated there was that he took the time to check the audience. And his guest, a black woman there to talk about race and racism, he would say, how can you have my guest here sitting here and say to her face that racism isn't real, my predominantly white audience. Like, are you in touch with reality? Right. You know, because again, you are benefiting from the system that is in place. Right. So obviously, at this point, we're asking you to pull back the curtain and see what is really happening. And those benefits may not necessarily come in the form of material things that are tangible, things you can touch. Sometimes it's just the the comfort of knowing you can walk into a store and you probably won't be followed. Right. It's the comfort of if the police stop you when you're driving, you can reach into your dashboard, you know, without having to ask for permission to get your license and registration. It's things like that that most white people don't even think twice about because they're probably not going to be ostracized for it. Yeah. Now, I just got my license about three years ago. I haven't done a whole lot of driving. But my father has had this discussion with me because he has been pulled over. And what he does is, you know, he's six feet tall, living on the Upper East Side, always been a very, you know, affluent, predominantly white neighborhood, and he has been pulled over. And what he does is he will ask, he's like, officer, do I have your permission to reach into my dashboard for the Mm. license and registration that you just asked for? And only when he gets the officer's permission does he do it. The fact that he has to ask is the first problem. Right. Because most white people, myself included, I've never had to do that. Yeah. Never had to do that. Yeah. It just, it makes me think of like the the new Queer Eye episodes oh, yeah. that came out. There was, in the first season, Karamo was driving and they were in, it, the episodes were being filmed in Atlanta at the time. And it wound up being a quote unquote joke, but they got pulled over. Mm-hmm. But they actually were there to help a police officer. So it was part of the gimmick. But it was so not cool. And you could see in his face, in Karamo's face, when they got pulled over, that for him, it meant something completely different 
than anybody else in that car. Right. Well, you mentioned Phil Donahue asking his predominantly white audience, do you think racism exists? And them saying, no, it's not a thing. What are you talking about? I don't see it. Jane Elliott, and I mentioned her during our last podcast yeah. together. I really admire her. She has been doing the same, what's called the blue eye experiment, which you can see on YouTube. She's been conducting it for 50 years at least. She was a school teacher and she would do it in the classroom setting. And then she went on to do it with various adult groups. And she, she once posed the question to her mostly white audience, I think in the 90s, early 2000s. And she said, can you honestly tell me that you would want to be treated the way your citizens, your fellow citizens of color have been treated? So when you structure the sentence, the question like that, all of a sudden they say, well, no, I would not want to. Well, that's you acknowledging that racism is a thing. Yeah. So sometimes it's about how you structure the question in the first place that lights up something in the brain for them. And they say, well, they, they see what's happening to, to black youth getting shot in the streets by law enforcement with impunity. They see what happens with racism in real estate. Yeah. They see the gentrification. There's so many manifestations of it. So when you phrase it like, if you were in the shoes of a less privileged person, would you like that? Then, of course, all of a sudden, it's no, I would not. Yeah. And that's how you tap into their awareness. Yeah, which is why I say, for me as a white person, it's no longer looking at racism, but looking at white supremacy is the thing, is because that turns the lens, right? You shift the lens inward. Right. Because I think when there's this modern conception for white people that when you think of racism it's like blackface white hoods like the extremes the overt and it's uh, like, manifestations of it right and it's like oh well i don't do those things so clearly i'm not racist right. and it's like no there's so much more that goes into it mm -hmm. that's why i say look at white supremacy and where you're complicit because all of that stuff leads <laughs> up to a certain level right Right. And you know? neither does having black friends or a black lover make you immune to being racist. You mentioned the more overt versions with the white hoods and, and, and blackface and so forth. Most people would agree that those overt forms are horrible. But racism also assumes other forms that are arguably more dangerous because the chances of people denying that they're there, yeah. denying that there is a problem, are higher. Yeah. For example... You know, I've been in situations where you know, people will say to me, oh, you have beautiful skin. And I, I keep things in perspective. Do you know what I mean? I'm not the kind of person that blows up on anything. If someone says to me, you have beautiful skin. I thank them very much. But I was in a situation where I was at um, some kind of an event and I was wearing a shirt where my arms were showing. And this white woman came up to me. I don't know her from a crack in the sidewalk. And all of a sudden <laughs> she starts caressing my arms. You have beautiful skin. What? Yeah. And I smiled and I said, thank you very much. And I let it go. But then I thought about it and it's just, am, am I a zoo animal? Am I a pet? Do you know what I mean? It yeah, would why are you touching me? Right. I, we don't, we're not friends. I don't even know your name. Do you know what I mean? It's just, it's a, it's a liberty that she took that I cannot imagine ever taking with somebody I don't know. Right. If we have that familiarity, if we're friends, if we're lovers, whatever it is, then that's fine. Right. But you just walked up to me and just start randomly caressing my arm. You could have just said you have nice skin without the physical contact. Right. If I may unpack that for a moment yeah. for anyone that's listening. Of course. White people have a history of treating black people in a way that is possessionary. So when you do something like that, especially now that we're in Black History Month, I encourage any white person that is posting about black history to see where our role fits into that. Mm-hmm. 
I think that is the biggest thing for us to learn amidst the people who are shaping history, how, like our role that we have played it up to this point. Cause I think it's like, don't exclude yourself from that narrative. Right. See where you fit into it. I think of in times where black people were working and still do work in households. And it's like the way that people would treat them as touching without like as if I have power over you I have possession over you I can do what I want it's like no that's why that would trigger someone of color where a white person just goes up and just touches them unsolicited right because I'm sure you're not walking up to another white person that you don't know and just start touching their skin out of nowhere they look at you like you're crazy so why is it when I look at you sideways for taking that kind of liberty as someone who does not know me you have the nerve to be offended Right. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And again, there have been, it has been documented in history, this kind of a thing. There are actual photographs of little black children in enclosed spaces where mostly white audience throwing bananas at them, trying to touch their hair. So you talked about, you used the word trigger. Yeah. Right? So that brings us back to that period. And we think about what our ancestors went through. It's part of the dehumanizing of black people. Same thing with touching our hair. Again, this is just something else that just, whether you're black, white, whatever, I cannot fathom just going up to somebody and just randomly caressing their hair. Like if we're in an intimate situation, that's very different. Right. But I mean, where do you come off just thinking, oh, I like your dreadlocks, can I touch them? We're not even asking. You just take it upon yourself to do. Yeah. And again, it's this kind of, it stems from the dehumanization. And it also stems from the idea that black people are something other than human. Right. Subhuman, some exotic thing that you think you can just touch and analyze and dissect like, you know, something in a lab. And it's a problem. Yeah. I've been in an instance where I was with my friend and a black woman and this guy came up to her is that your real hair and went to and touched her hair and i was like what are you doing don't touch her hair yeah i mean she was so sweet and laughed it off i mean granted it was a work context but that makes it extra not okay right right i I suspect this is a kind of woman who was because here's the thing black people are always expected to take the quote-unquote higher road we're expected to rein in our emotions We're expected to keep them to ourselves. We're expected to, oh, just brush it off and keep it moving, right? And as I established not long ago, I really try not to get upset in all instances because that requires too much of my energy. And I don't want to deplete my energy in that way. But I may not say something all the time, but that doesn't mean that my brain is unaware of what just happened. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, the fact that we... (laughs) for instance, are still talking about blackface. And I'm assuming you probably want to ask some questions about that in 2019, guys. Yes. Really? Uh, Northam there, the the governor of Virginia. Virginia. Yes, thank you. I know it's him, Justin Fairfax, the lieutenant governor, and then the third guy in charge there are kind of under some heat. But Northam himself is in the hottest water, I think. Yeah. Uh, you want me to comment on that? Or please, you had a question? Please, nope. <laughs> Just filling in anybody that hasn't been checking the news lately. <laughs> well, I think much like the Me Too movement where you have these powerful, mostly white men getting called out for past uh, misdemeanors and terrible behavior, what's starting to happen, uh, Northam would have been the first example, is people have been going back in history and finding old photos from yearbooks and whatever of various prominent white people in different industries 
showing them in blackface or whatever or standing next to someone who is in blackface and they're finally being called out for it now the northam situation has really generated a lot of responses in people Mm -hmm. you have some people saying well you know this was over 30 years ago he was young he didn't know any better now he's trying to make amends and let's look at all the positive he's done and so on the problem with this is (laughs) this was not 1920 this was not 1930 this was 1984 right the photo that appeared in his yearbook showed him at roughly 25 years of age that's a grown man that's number one Number two, what does it say about this university in Virginia that it's okay to include this photograph? You had a picture of Northam, presumably Northam, in blackface, standing next to someone in a Klansman outfit. And when we talk about things like disconnect, when black people talk about disconnect from racism, that's precisely what we're talking about. White folks will just you know, take the parts of blackness that they think are aesthetically pleasing to include our skin color and just treat it like some kind of a costume. Treat it like a point of a subject of fun. Let's just stand here and, you know, and take a funny picture. No one's going to think anything of it. Do you know what I mean? And I hope this is a learning experience for Northam. And this is not something that I was willing to let him get away with simply because we're of the same political party. I think we need to call these things out uh, regardless of the political affiliation of the person. I don't care if you're a Republican, independent, if you don't identify with any group at all, whatever. And it is something that he can learn from. But I think some people need to realize as well is sometimes some life lessons do require you to lose out on some privileges. And in this case, it may require him to relinquish his governorship and step down. Yeah. It's a hard lesson. It's an unfortunate lesson. But when you, I saw the press conference, I think it was last Saturday. He was trying to, I guess, do a bit of damage control. But what wound up happening is he created more damage. Of course. Because he said, first he said, it is me in the photo. I'm sorry. Then he said, no, that's not me in the photo. But in that same year, which is 1984, I was part of, what do you call it, a talent competition in San Antonio, Texas, where I dressed like Michael Jackson and I used shoe polish to darken my skin. So it's like, oh, okay, all right, so you didn't blackface here, but you blackfaced there. Right. You just admitted you still blackface, it's just you're doing a very specific black figure. And the interesting thing is, Michael Jackson, to this day, after X amount of years of his death, has numerous impersonators and it's very easy to tell who you're trying to impersonate you can use the sequined glove or the jacket he wore in the thriller video you can put on a jerry curl and people will know who you're trying to impersonate without you having to alter your skin no one's saying that no you, you can't impersonate anybody black at all because you're white no but there are ways to do it i have a friend for instance who really admires usain bolt's she went as him for a Halloween party and she mm. told me exactly how she did it. She's like, I had like the Jamaican colors. I had on a bunch of flags. I did that lightning bolt pose that he does. People knew exactly who I was. I didn't have to touch my skin. So if you're creative enough and if you're socially cognizant enough, you'll find a way. Yeah. 
even in cosplay i see people do that celebrate black characters but they don't do the blackface because it's there is history there and also you don't need to you don't because there's ways to pay homage to that character without even touching skin color right weird al has he has there's footage of him impersonating michael jackson uh coolio you knew exactly who he was impersonating, impersonating because of how he was dressed. And in the case of Coolio, I think he got a wig with a lot of braids kind of going up towards the sky. The look that he had in, in the Gangster's Paradise video. Yeah. And you knew exactly who it was. Right. Also, one thing I wanted to come back to regarding yeah. the whole gubernatorial disaster that's happening in yeah. Virginia is that being a Democrat or a liberal does not give you armor. We, right. I know we kind of talked about this on, on the book for a bit. It doesn't matter your political affiliation by saying, I'm a liberal, though. I believe in equality for everybody. And then you like information comes up about you in your past. I'm sorry, but it doesn't give you armor. Like mm -hmm. everyone is susceptible because the thing is, oh, well, the whole thing with Liam Neeson that's happening right now. Oh, Have you heard about thing. this? Uh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, OK. Oh Talk God. about putting your foot in your mouth. What an idiot. But also like at the same point in time, not aware. He's out pitching his new movie and doing press for it. And he mentioned how a friend of his, a female friend of his was raped and he asked her the race of the person and she said black and so he said that he decided he was so angry he was going to go out looking for any black man to assault mm -hmm. now can we just address how that is wrong and racist because black people are already being marginalized and assaulted because of their skin color right often wrongly right right you know so again i defer you to the current news and anything that's happening right now so it's like, why is that wrong? And he said, oh, but I'm not a racist. Yes, you are. Yes, <laughs> right. you are. I'm sorry, because racism affects everybody because it's the society with which that we're raised. Right. The same thing, I will argue the same thing with homophobia. I grew up in a homophobic society. Therefore, homophobia lives inside of me. It is my life's work to undo it. Mm -hmm. So I can't say the same thing with racism. You can't say I'm not racist. It's the society that we live in. That's right. it. Do the work. Start unpacking is my thing. So Liam Neeson, to say that you're not racist or like with Kevin Hart, who said, I don't have a homophobic bone in my body after that. using the word fag multiple times on mm -hmm. Twitter. I'm like, you can't say the word fag and then say, I don't have a homophobic bone in my body. Right. They're not synonymous. Right. I haven't been following Liam Neeson as closely as I followed Governor Northam. But from what I understand, Neeson is talking about there are pictures of him now hugging black people and yeah. all of this pandering and trying to do some semblance of damage control and there are people saying oh we should forgive him because he came out and he said that he you know he shouldn't have said this and i'm not racist and whatever we're just out here giving cookies for people doing the barest minimum do you know what i mean and it really you have to question his sense to even come out with a statement like that some things are just better left unsaid so the only thing liam neeson really succeeded in doing is <laughs> getting me to not be anywhere near him because I'm not a black man, but I'm black. And I already know now how you feel about me. Right. So there's no amount of damage control you can do to make me change that. Yeah. And it's, again, not to say that people don't grow and evolve, which we talked about last time. Be mm -hmm. responsible for your own evolution. There is a way to acknowledge the fact that you have evolved and that is not it. Right. In fact, that shows devolution right exactly <laughs> you're going backwards yeah devolving De i guess but yeah <laughs> so yeah yeah I, I think yeah there are ways to go you know what i messed up 
and I'm, I'm really sorry and I'm trying to find ways that I can, you know, make it up to you and whatever, but just to just dig yourself a deeper hole as Governor Northam did at his press conference, as Liam Neeson continues to do, that's not helping anybody. Yeah. And don't hide behind labels. Don't hide behind things like I'm a Democrat, I'm right. a li- liberal, I'm a Republican. Again, political affiliation doesn't mean shit. Right. And again, stop adopting this whole idea of being a quote unquote good person. Everybody has goodness, but also a lot of us do some shitty stuff. Right. You know, if we were all to comb through our own personal histories, I'm sure you would come across some things that you did that were not cool at a time. And hopefully you have learned why that wasn't okay. Well, this may be a strange thing to bring up, but I mean, especially as someone who is part of the GLBT community, but when I was a child, you know, early teens or so, I distinctly remember making some very homophobic remarks. Yeah. Now, I wasn't out about my sexuality then. I didn't know what it was. I wouldn't go on to come out until years later when I was 17. And so it speaks to your point. If you look at anybody's history, you're going to find things that are problematic, but there are levels to the problematicness. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And you grow and you evolve and whatever. And I look at those comments I made now, this is well before the advent of social media, if I was nine, 10 years old. And I think, wow, that was a really trashy thing to say. Yeah. It really was. Yeah. You know, but I was glad to have been able to catch it early instead of allowing myself to get older and still espouse these ideas. And that doesn't make much sense because I identify as bi. So why would you be homophobic? You know, it, it, it's stupid. So, right. yeah, everybody can evolve. Absolutely. I mean, even as a gay man, I have I know in my early years of like navigation as being a gay man, I said some homophobic shit in the sense of like, I'm a man who likes men, mm-hmm. like devaluing effeminate men right in that way and saying that if i wanted to date a woman i'd be straight right i now know why that thinking is wrong Mm -hmm. i also know and have better illumination on gender presentation and identity Mm -hmm. and also the way that we look at masculine and feminine is again societally created right and we are byproducts of that society i've said this many times we don't exist as islands All right. We're all in this society. We're all hearing these different messages in the media, on billboards, on social media. You get all of this information and all of it, whether you realize it or not, does shape your opinions on things. Which is why when somebody says, like, I'm not racist or I'm not homophobic or I'm not this. I'm like, which middle of the woods did you grow up in? Right. Because... If you grew up in a civilized society, Mm -hmm. these things existed within you. Right. And And now start to unpack them. Right. And the sad thing is, it's not like some other species is subjecting humankind to this. It's human beings doing it to other human beings. I'm bowled over by the stupidity of our species sometimes. Honest to God. (laughs) When you sit and you think about it, you're like, what genius decided I'm better than Everyone else, every other homo sapien out here, because I'm white or because I'm straight, it doesn't make sense. Think about what an incredible world we would live in if every human being was given the opportunity to take their talents and fully engage with society and to help build society. There would be no stopping us. Yeah. There's so many talented people in this country, in this world, who will never have the platform necessary to air out and to share those talents because of something as ridiculous as the color of their skin or their financial status or their gender or their sexuality. Yeah. And these are self-imposed limitations that we put on 
other human beings because of the group they fall into. It's crazy. Makes me think of something that Jazz shared recently in her story. And it was a teacher who put something on her door for Black History Month. And it said, dear students, Mm -hmm. don't think that all they took was slaves. They stole astronomers, politicians, healers, doctors, you name it, from Africa. Yeah. And it was just like, yes, I love that. Because the thing is, and it makes me think of Brittany Cooper, too, who Mm -hmm. gives an incredible TED Talk, listen to it, about time and about how time is monopolized by the privileged. With the whole slave trade, white people stole time from black people. Right. And even when slavery was abolished, black people still found themselves in a difficult spot. They couldn't get gainful employment. You know, we weren't allowed to buy or own anything because for so many years we were property ourselves. Right. We couldn't invest in any stocks. The banks didn't want to deal with us. So we couldn't, even if we wanted to, you know, try and and get something started for ourselves post-slavery, there were still all of these obstacles. And then you fast forward into the future and you have Jim Crow. You can't use the same water fountains, can't go to the same schools, separate but equal, etc. So please don't think for a moment that because when slavery was abolished, with it went racism. Right. No, it just took on another form. I think we should... In this session here, but you will be back for sure. Yes, I will. And uh, Spencer, as always, thank you so much for your voice, for your contribution to Typed Out. And again, where can we find you on all social outlets and your work? Yeah. um, Well, Nick mentioned I have an article in Huffington Post uh, about something much more pleasant. I wrote about uh, the swinger community in New York. So you can find my work on Huffington Post. You can also uh, follow me on Instagram. That'd probably be the best way to get me on social media. And my handle is Dismantled the Novel, which is the novel that Nick was talking about. And yeah, that'd be the best way to get me. And there's also a few podcasts tied into your Huffington Post article as well, right? Yes, yes, yes. I did two podcasts related to my Huffington Post article. The first one was called uh, In Your Face with Donnie and Grace. I did two with, uh, with Grace And then I did another one this week with uh, one of the creators of Pardon My French. So that one is going to be part of a larger segment on sexuality. Great. And as those get released, you can come to Typed Out and grab the links, listen to Spencer on all outlets. And also, if you came out last night to the Center for Remembering and Sharing for our Love Always event, it was a smash hit. Thank you so much. And that conversation will be available soon. We just need to parse out the audio and you'll be able to listen along to that conversation with the folks from the Devotion Project and myself. Again, I thank you for listening. I am Nick Polifron, your host, and we will see you again next week. Take care. Keep growing. Keep evolving. Yes. All right. (laughs) Bye. Bye, friends. Bye.